I'm drawn this morning to our reading from Isaiah. In this part of Isaiah, Isaiah is telling the story of a lowly servant. A lowly servant who's going to remove sin from the world. And Isaiah is struggling here to communicate how this servant is going to remove sin from the world. Isaiah 53, it's a famous passage of Scripture. It's one of the most discussed passages of the Old Testament. And on many levels, the story is shocking. First, it's violent. Now, why would this be shocking? There are lots of violent stories in the Bible. But throughout Isaiah, right from chapter 2, we're told about a servant who's going to end all violence. Isaiah chapter 2, Many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The Messiah has come to end violence, and yet when we reach chapter 53, we find that this Messiah, this suffering servant, will be the victim of violence. And the language here is pretty extreme. He was cut off out of the land of the living. This is a violent death. It's not an accidental death or a death from old age, but a death from violence. He was pierced for our transgressions. The Hebrew word there literally means pierced through. In other words, from one side of the body out the other side of the body. Excruciating pain. Not just a pinprick, but a thrust through the body. How could this be the Messiah? How could the one sent to bring peace and end violence be pierced through and killed so violently himself? But not only is this death violent, It's vicarious. It's for someone else. In verse 10, we see this amazing transition. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. An offering for guilt. God will crush this man to make a guilt offering. This concept of a guilt offering is all over the Old Testament and especially in Moses' law. At specific and set times, the people sacrifice an animal who carries their guilt It's a reminder that sin and guilt are serious. Sin and guilt are not only life-changing, they're life-ending. It's a reminder that sin breaks the relationship between humans and gods and that that relationship must be restored. But one thing that is absolutely clear in Scripture is that human sacrifice is condemned. The God of Israel condemns human sacrifice But here we're told he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The violent nature of the death is shocking. The vicarious nature of the death is shocking. And the voluntary nature of the death is shocking. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. The servant himself pours out his soul in death. But throughout Scripture, suicide is condemned. How do we make sense of this voluntary death? 
Well, some people have tried to make sense of it this way. They say that this is all poetry, which is true, and this must refer to some sort of poetic image, which is true, but poetic images have to actually refer to something or else the poetry is nonsense. Here's the start of a brilliant poem by Lewis Carroll. "'Twas brillig, and the slivy troths did gyre and gimble in the wabe." It's great poetry, but it doesn't refer to anything. It's complete nonsense. So how do we make sense of this? Well, fortunately, we have another story in the book of Acts where that exact same thing happens. There's an Ethiopian eunuch, a high-ranking official of Queen Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. He's a eunuch because he's a high official. Oftentimes in the ancient world, if you want a high position of authority, if you're a man, you have to submit to castration. That way you won't have your own descendants, you won't have your own family, you won't have a temptation to overthrow the ruler and step in so that your family can take over running. It's a way of ensuring loyalty. He's gone to Jerusalem to worship. I should have looked up how far it is from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. I didn't. A long way in a chariot. But he's turned away at the temple. Moses' law says someone who's been castrated cannot come into the temple. And so he turns away. But that spiritual desire that led him to Jerusalem doesn't leave him. He's still reading a copy of Scripture. And he's reading Isaiah 53. When Philip, a deacon, is told to go see him, from Acts chapter 8, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And he rose and he went. Philip passes by the chariot. He hears the man reading from the book of Isaiah. And Philip asks the eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? And the man said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told the man the good news about Jesus. Deacon Philip directs the eunuch to Jesus. If Jesus is God in the flesh, then the riddle begins to unravel. Jesus isn't committing suicide. We can't take our own life because God gave us our life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Only God can take away life. But if God has come in the flesh and offered his own life, that's a different set of circumstances. It explains the vicarious nature of Christ's death. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a short line, just three words, writes, forgiveness is suffering. When you want someone to suffer, but you don't make them suffer, you forgive them, you suffer. When you want to really make someone pay for what they did, and you don't make them pay, you suffer. What Deacon Philip explained was that God himself suffered for us. 
suffered in order to forgive us. And when you grasp what that means, it can affect you. There are other views out there. I'm sure there are lots of people in Gainesville who will say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm sure I'm going to be okay when I die. But that doesn't move them to tears. It doesn't affect them. Or there may be set people who say, well, you know, if there is a God, he's probably a good God, so he'll probably just let me slide anyway. But that doesn't create an emotional relationship. That doesn't electrify anyone. The biblical God is infinitely holy and infinitely loving. And when you find out about him and his love for you, it melts your heart. It changes the way you see yourself. It ends your feeling of inferiority and it ends your feeling of superiority. And it replaces both of those false feelings with reality. You face the reality of who you are. More evil than you can ever imagine, but more loved than you could ever hope. It's liberating, and that changes you. Thinking about being good enough to make God happy doesn't give anybody a lump in the throat. But understanding what Jesus did for us, well, it can change us. So what is our takeaway this morning? Jesus is wounded for our sins, and out of his wounds we are healed, and with his stripes we are healed. Well, okay, but I hope none of this is really new to you. I hope you've heard of this before, but maybe we can make a new application. Last week, Father Alex challenged us to become more like Christ. As we read Isaiah 53, how are we to be like Christ? What is this passage calling us to do? What is this passage, Isaiah 53, calling us to do to be like Christ? Well, Jesus is the ultimate wounded healer. That phrase first became familiar from the work of the Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung. Um, he was a student of Sigmund Freud's. He uh, uh, came up with ideas of collective unconsciousness and archetypes and extroversion and introversion are come from Jung's thought. And as much as I have some significant major problems with Jung's attempt to blend psychology with anti-Christian heresy, um, like Freud, he did get some stuff right. And I think seeing this echo of the, 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 the wounded healer is something that he got right. Through, through Jung's study of Greek mythology, he found several figures like a centaur named Chiron who's injured and never recovers but out of his injury helps others, trains others, teaches others. There's a story of Asclepius, who's a physician who's unable to heal himself. Jesus talked about that at one point, you might remember. But out of his own illness, he's able to help others. And there's something to this about helping professions that attract people who have themselves been hurt. This semester I'm teaching for the first time our first year seminar at the college. And um, we asked, uh, Leanne and I are team teaching the course, and we asked the students, uh, who, who, um, what, name someone who inspired you to go into the major you're going into. And by far more than half of those who are going into nursing or some of the healthcare fields, they wrote that they were inspired by a relative who got sick and some of them who died that the nurses and the doctors who cared for them were their inspiration, that out of their own sense of loss of the suffering of a, losing a family member, they turned to becoming a healthcare professional to help others. 
the wounded healer principle is this. When we experience trouble or suffering, if we ask Jesus to use that to make us wiser and better people as a result, we become more qualified to help those who are undergoing the same kind of trouble. Wounded healers know that there's hope after hurt because they've already been there. That's one reason for the big success of the 12-step programs. You walk along somebody who's already been there to get somebody out of being there. And so a troubled past, our personal weakness, our damaged from past hurts, is not a valid excuse to avoid service. Rather, it's a preparation and a call to service. God frequently uses weak instruments to accomplish great results. A man who called himself useless was Moses. An angry man who denied Christ three times was Peter. A self-righteous man who persecuted the church was Paul. And then there's me and you. So let's not waste our weaknesses, our failures, our hurts, and our pains, but instead allow God to use our woundedness and the entire process of our own healing to equip us for service. In Jesus' name, amen.